0: Welcome to Biblical Foundations, a podcast of the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm your co-host, Quinn Mosier, along with Dr. Andreas Kostenberger. Join us as we discuss issues in biblical scholarship for the church. Well, thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. After a week break from the Biblical Foundations podcast, we pick back up today in our series on John's Gospel with John chapter 4. In today's episode, we hear about two famous pericopes that close out the Cana cycle in John's Gospel, the Samaritan woman at the well and the healing of an official's son. So listen in now to episode 53, The Woman at the Well and the official son.
1: Moving to chapter four, our final chapter, um, which says, "Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, So Jesus leaves Judea, He'd moved from Jerusalem to the Judean countryside in John 3:22 and now travels to Galilee, back to Galilee, right? Cana cycle, by way of Samaria, John 4, 3 to 4. So there's this interesting geographical movement back and forth in John, a little different from the synoptics, which basically have Jesus in Galilee, various cycles of ministry there, and then only come to Jerusalem at the end. Uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 is very interesting because it asserts that Jesus, quote-unquote, had to pass through Samaria. You check your translation, that's what it says. Now, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. The truth is, and I'm not saying scripture's in the error here, hear me out, uh, he didn't have to pass through Samaria. In fact, many Jews, most Jews in that, they took a longer route in order to avoid passing through Samaria. But apparently here, the evangelist stresses divine necessity. That is, Jesus had to pass through Samaria because this was part of God's plan. Again, they're interesting salvation historical connections, this time with Jacob and Joseph in verses 5 and 6, with references there to Joseph's field and Jacob's well. So it's interesting, he's already talked about Abraham and Isaac. Now he's continuing with Jacob and Joseph. Sounds like he's giving us this chronological. Old Testament backdrop to Jesus' ministry. Now, while the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is unique in and of itself, I believe it's clear that John deliberately juxtaposes, again, it was a thorough intent here, as you can discern it from the from clues in the text, he deliberately juxtaposes this account with the previous one, Jesus' interchange with Nicodemus, in order to compare and contrast their respective Responses. Consider the following contrasts. Some of them obvious, some not so obvious. Uh, first, Nicodemus was a man and she was a woman. State the obvious, but the status was vastly different uh, in the first century. Secondly, Nicodemus was a Jew. The woman was a Samaritan. It was a hated hybrid race. Third, Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. The Samaritan woman remains unnamed. Doesn't even have a name. Uh, Fourth, he was a member of the Jewish highest court, the Sanhedrin. She was a nobody. Fifth, he knew the scriptures, while she was mired in folklore and tradition. Sixth, he was the epitome of morality, at least as far as uh, anyone could tell. She was an immoral woman who had engaged in a series of immoral relationships. And incidentally, some translations say that she had had five husbands. The Greek just says five. On there, uh, five men. I tend to think that she was probably not married five times, but just had five, you know, uh, illicit relationships uh, with with various men, without necessarily having married each and every one of them. It would have been unusual in first century um, Palestine. Uh, and seventh. Uh, Nicodemus comes by night. She comes at noon. List goes on and on. Can probably add a few more contrasts. So humanly speaking, Nicodemus towers over the Samaritan in every conceivable respect. It's almost like if you had a scorecard, it'd be 7-0 in favor of Nicodemus right now. And yet, John shows a dramatic reversal when it comes to spiritual understanding. Contrary to all expectations, we don't have time to go through the story in great detail, but we see a remarkable progression of the woman's understanding of Jesus. She first, in verse 9, calls him simply a Jew. Then, when he tells her about her previous relationships, um, in a striking display of supernatural knowledge, she calls him a prophet. She says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet, verse 19. And then when he identifies himself to her plainly as the Messiah, which, by the way, Jesus hardly ever does in any of the other Gospels. You know, Scholars speak of the Messianic secret motif in the synoptics. Um, so when he says, yeah, I, the one who, who's speaking to you, I'm he, she concludes that he likely is the Christ, verse 29. What's more, while Nicodemus fades silently into the night, the woman bears eloquent witness to her fellow Samaritans in broad daylight, inviting them to come to meet Jesus and to see for themselves. The teacher of Israel is reduced to silence and exposed for his lack of spiritual understanding, while the Samaritan woman turns into a successful evangelist. That's quite a contrast. So don't always believe external impressions, which incidentally, that's in keeping with Jesus' pattern of reversal elsewhere, including instances where Samaritans emerge as the heroes of a story, such as the parable of a good Samaritan in Luke 10, or the story of the 10 healed lepers in Luke 17. Of course, Luke has a special interest in this reversal motif. John's message for his original readers and for all of us today could not be more convicting. Spiritual receptivity will often be found in those who lack status, power, and prestige in this world. You see the same thing later in Paul's ministry, uh, working on a book on biblical theology of mission right now, second edition of Salvation at the Ends of the Earth. And so I just uh, a few days ago wrote the section on Acts 17. Uh, fascinating uh, that Paul there is debating the philosophers, and only a handful of people believe. In contrast to some of the other places, less highbrow places that Paul visits, where there's a much larger response uh, and actual churches that he established. Let me read for you a brief portion. You know it from 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-six to twenty-nine, where Paul writes: For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, like the Samaritan woman, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, Nicodemus, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In the case of the Samaritans, John tells us, in verse 39 that many samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony and then in verse 30 and verse 40 many more believed because of Jesus own word and along the way by the way talking about the historical cultural background aspect here we see Jesus breaking just about every social taboo upheld by first century Jewish rabbis and scripture literate males. He talks to a woman alone, in public, and not just any woman, but an immoral one from a hated hybrid impure race. And he doesn't just talk to her briefly, but engages her in extended conversation. He is even willing to take a cup of water from her when Jews had no dealings with Samaritans, didn't associate with them which likely included not touching any of their vessels or belongings he even accepts the Samaritan's invitation to stay with them for two days verse 40 no wonder his disciples when they returned from getting food in town marveled that he was talking with a woman verse 27 it's another great example how knowing historical cultural background by the way can be really helpful in getting the full sense of a passage. Um, and we have quite a few uh, first century uh, sources that, that illumine uh, what first century rabbis in general would have done in this kind of situation. Believe me, it was nothing like the way Jesus acted. Um, finally, the healing of a Satorian son, which concludes the Cana cycle. Like most of the other signs, startling numbers are involved. That's Something interesting in the seven signs, the only exception is the healing of the man born blind, where the, there's not really a number. But the other six, uh, and I didn't say large numbers, but startling numbers. Could be large, could be surprising in some way. So uh, consider the large amount of wine Jesus produces. He didn't just turn water into wine. He turned a very, very large quantity of, of water into wine. Um, or the 46 years versus the three days at the temple cleansing, or then later the healing of a man who had been lame for 38 years, or the feeding of a 5,000, and that's just the men. My son David once wrote a paper that's uh, legendary in our family in uh, high school, the feeding of the 20,013, average of four per family, right, of uh, 5,000 times four, two children, uh, and then the 12 and Jesus, right? Uh, feeding of 20,000 twenty thousand and thirteen, 13, because it just says the, the feeding of the 5,000, that's just the men. So it's really a bit of a misnomer, right? Because we know that there were not just men there. Uh, just mentions the, them as leaders of the households. Uh, or the raising of Lazarus four days after he died when, according to Jewish, Uh, belief, the main spirit left after three days. Uh, In our case, the story revolves around the exact time, one o'clock in the afternoon, when Jesus healed the centurion's son long distance. So as we conclude our study of the Cana cycle, chapters two to four of John's gospel, we've seen that this portion of scripture provides a fascinating case study both in Johannan theology and in mission theology, I happened to write my doctoral dissertation at Trinity in Chicago on the mission theme in John's Gospel. John twenty twenty one is the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. With regard to Johannan theology, we see here three of Jesus' seven messianic signs selected for inclusion in this gospel. All of these are public acts of Jesus designed to lead people to faith in Him as Messiah and Son of God. Now, with regard to mission theology, we see Jesus here provide textbook examples of engaging people from various backgrounds, religious and non-religious, moral and immoral, powerful and powerless. They are male and female, Jew and Gentile, those of high status, and those whose status is low. In this way, the Cana cycle serves as a powerful narrative demonstration of Paul's words in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus.
0: Thank you for joining us today at Biblical Foundations. For more information, please visit the Center for Biblical Studies at Midwestern at cbs.mbts.edu. For further resources, also visit biblicalfoundations.org. Join us again next time at the Biblical Foundations podcast.